This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 440, a conversation with Mark Buckingham. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 440. It's our conversation with Mark Buckingham. I was very uh, happy to be able to uh, sit down with Mark this past weekend to discuss his career in comics, his time on Fables, uh, his time uh, illustrating Spider-Man, amongst many other projects, including uh, some... uh, some discussion about uh, Miracle Man. Um, before we get into the episode, I wanted to thank a few people from the Marvel Masterworks Forum for submitting questions. We had a question from uh, Faust33, Stoltman, and Curtis Finlay. Uh, so thanks everyone for submitting some questions. Uh, I tried to g- generally integrate them into the uh, conversation. Uh, I think Curtis's question it wasn't directly, I didn't actually have to directly pose it, but uh, it did kind of come about as we discussed, um, uh, you know, kind of how uh, Mark's career had kind of the different phases that had gone through and stuff I didn't actually know about, you know, him going from, you know, being a penciler to kind of learning the craft of inking and what that kind of felt like and was like at that point and then eventually transitioning back to pencils. Um, very interesting conversation. There's some great fables talk in there. Um, some stuff I, I wasn't quite aware of, um, but maybe other people were uh, in terms of how his kind of involvement with fables kind of came out. Um, very interesting stuff. Uh, Mark was extremely generous with this time, uh, having a, a great conversation with us. So I'm really excited for everyone to listen to it, uh, which we'll get into in just a moment. You can always email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. You can like the show on Facebook, read and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, this episode, there's a little bit of background noise, unfortunately, in the last half. Um, my three-and-a-half-year-old son was uh, supposed to be napping, ended up like, crashing through. Uh, it sounded like he's like crashing everywhere in his room, and so I, that may have picked up a bit on the microphone, and I don't know if I could get rid of all of it. So so it's kind of in and, uh, in, in and around uh, the audio there, so I apologize in advance for that. Um, I will say um, Mark was extremely generous, uh, as I said, with his time, because in the middle of uh, recording, my son would come down from his nap, uh, just kind of walking over and trying to strike up a conversation with me and asking what I was doing. Uh, at one point, wanting to say hi to the person on the other line, which was, of course, Mark. So um, thankfully, we were able to edit that out, but uh, there's a little bit of him in and around as he's making noise, so uh, if you notice any kind of lag on the audio that's where it's coming from uh so this is again a great episode as i sit down with mark to talk talk about his career in comics and i think you're really going to dig this uh let's jump right into our conversation with mark buckingham so mark welcome to comic shenanigans how are you doing today very well thank you adam pleasure to be here well i'm very glad to have you on the show today the first question i like to ask every guest uh generally is uh what's the the most common thing that you're asked to sign at conventions oh um very good question. I, I guess these days it's it's mostly fables, and I would guess it's you know Animal Farm and um, you know some of those earlier volumes tend to sort of crop up the most often. And outside of that, it's probably collections of death. Hmm. I think things that most people bring me. What's the the oddest thing that you've been asked to sign recently? Oh. Um, I don't know about recently. I mean, certainly I've had people sort of give me their shoe and things like that <laughs> and ask me to sign it or uh, someone's backpack. And, you know, you obviously get lots of things like T-shirts and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, most most of my, my readers are, are, are very nice people who actually just want scribbles on books and comics, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> What's um I, I guess in the comic realm? What's some of the um 
the more rare stuff you've been asked to sign there? Um, Comic-wise, oh gosh, um, uh, that's that's a good question. I mean, I get surprised sometimes when things crop up that I kind of forget I did. Um, you know, like, and, and sometimes there are comics I didn't even see them when they came out. For example, there was a comic strip that I did that ran on the back of a set of trading cards one year, uh, Wolverine uh, short story. And that got reprinted at one point in a comic, which I never saw. So, uh, you know, sometimes you get that surprise of somebody bringing you something that seems new and then you open it up and you're flicking through, oh, I see what this is. So, um, yeah, these things sort of happen from time to time. But uh, I must admit, um, uh, I've been quite lucky in that a lot of people that follow my work seem to be quite consistent and sort of follow me from project to project. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll get people come to me with a range of stuff from different aspects of my career, and that's that's always quite comforting to see. Now, how did comics first kind of enter your world? Like, wh- when does that happen? How old are you? What are you reading? Um, what, what is it that kind of draws you in? Basically, I, I, I had a period in, in early on in my life, around about the age of four, where I suffered from, from quite a lot of illness. It took a while for the correct medication to be... Uh, prescribed for me and in order to keep me entertained and look after their sickly child my parents gave me three things to to entertain me one of them was comic books the other was um, drawing materials and paper so I could actually uh, entertain myself that way and they also gave me modeling clay so I could sort of build things and make things and and those three things became the core of everything that sort of informed where I wanted to go with my life after that I always modeled I always sculpted and I always read comic books and I always tried to create my own stories I mean right from the age of about five or six I was I was starting to write my own tales and you know would would create little comic strips you know to, to show to my friends in the playground at school and invented my own characters and um, and I voraciously read comic books and I think the thing that really sparked my imagination were the um the UK reprints of classic Marvel comics that were starting to appear um, at the beginning of the 1970s. Um, so I was, you know, getting Ditko and Romita Spider-Man. I was getting Jack Kirby's Fantastic Four and, and Thor and things like that. And, and all of that stuff absolutely you know, blew my mind. I, I you know, adored all of that material and absorbed it. Um, and alongside all the sort of British comics that I could get my hands on as well, sort of the humour comics like Whoopi and Wizard and Chips and um, uh, and the you know, war comics like Victor and things like that. Um, and then the next big comic that sort of really changed everything for me was 2000 AD, which came out in 77 um, when I was 10. And I think that was the moment at which... Um, you know, really, there was nowhere else for me to go except comic books. I think after <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, just adored that 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 comic, and and so many of those artists were were big influences on me as I as I was growing up. Now, I want you to kind of make that that decision that you know this is what you want to do. This is how you kind of want to make a living. How do you enter the industry at that point? Um, well, I. I you know, I was always realistic, and my parents always encouraged me to, um, 
you know, to, to, to keep a broad mind and assume that, you know, I probably wouldn't get to do something specific like that, you know, because I lived in a small little seaside town in, you know, southwest coast of England. You don't expect to go from there to working for some big publisher or, you know, it's, just, it's all very remote and, and far away and didn't seem like part you know reality for me so i mean I, I i was equally keen just to you know develop design skills and to you know contemplate things like graphic design or, or other types of illustration work or or even to go into something more like sort of commercial illustration you know sort of anything from sort of you know whatever could potentially allow me to 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 make a living with a pencil in my hand was was kind of my aim, and I wasn't too specific as long as that was at the core of it. Um, but I always sort of kept that desire to tell stories, and always kept sort of plugging away at that in my spare time. And I also started to make animated films as well. My my parents brought me a, a Super 8 camera. Um, with the little trigger so that I could do stop frame animation and I started making my own films as well. There was a, a TV show in the UK called the Do It Yourself Animation Show that was um, hosted by Bob Godfrey, the creator of Rhubarb and Custard and various other uh, important cartoon series from UK television in the 70s. And, um, and, I, and I remember that the, the book of the series that was available in my local library was sort of pretty much on permanent loan to me every time <laughs> <laughs> I had to take it back. I just booked it out again. Um, and, and, you know, I was learning a lot from that as well. So I, I always had this idea that one of those two things could be my career, either comics or animation, but it was always a sort of a long shot rather than an expectation. And then, um, so you, you, you kind of, you break in originally in the UK, but then how do you make that transition to working for the American comic book companies? Because that is a big transition to make. That is a big one. I mean, I was incredibly fortunate because um, a number of factors sort of played in my favor. One was I, when I went to university um, uh, to sort of study design, I made friends with various people that lived in the, in the neighboring town um, and basically beca became part of a little comic book sort of fanzine and, and small press little family and they gave me a lot of support and encouragement and they were quite aware of different opportunities that might crop up or, or, or things that were happening and uh, one of them in particular mentioned to me a, a charity comic called uh, Strip Aids that was being put together um, that was to raise awareness with the beginning of the AIDS epidemic and it was to raise funds for London Lighthouse, which was a, a care centre that had been set up to, to help people that were, were suffering from the disease and to support the families around them. And, um, and I sort of contributed a, a little one-page strip to that, uh, just managed to sort of get in under the wire because I only found out about it like the day before the deadline. Oh, wow. Um, uh, and got a strip in, and and that allowed me to sort of you know meet a you know, go along to the launch of that, and meet a few people. Uh, but what really was helpful from that is that a, a publisher of a satire magazine that was about to start called The Truth um, basically got his hands on a copy of of, the, of that charity comic when it was released, and sort of treated it a little bit like a sort of shopping list for new talent um, that he could then. <laughs> 
pages of his magazine with, and luckily for me, I was one of the artists whose, whose style he liked. Um, and not being one to miss an opportunity, when he approached me about doing stuff with magazine, I basically volunteered for everything. So I had a newspaper-style strip in there. I had a one-page series called Duck and Cover that we, you know ran in every monthly issue. I was contributing... Um, pieces for covers I um, I was also offering my services for, for spot illustrations for the various features and articles in there as well and what was very convenient about that is they put you know the, they used to put me together with a three man writing group um, that consisted of the horror writer Kim Newman, uh, another wonderful writer from the West Country called Eugene Byrne, and, and this young journalist turned writer called Neil Gaiman. <laughs> and basically that's how I, my career really started, was, was through that sort of magazine and the work that I was doing there. That was the, the sort of beginnings of me as a professional comic book creator. And, um, and I showed Neil some of the other stuff that I was working on. And, um, and, and, you know, that's really where the beginnings of the relationship with DC came from because he recommended me to Karen Berger. Um, I met her at a, a meeting of a thing called the Society for Strip Illustration, which later went on to become the Comic Creators Guild. Um, and that was a professional kind of organization that had been set up for um, comic creators to be able to meet in the UK and exchange knowledge and information and socialize a little and uh, for those of us that were looking to sort of get into the business at that time it was a wonderful springboard gave you the, you know, gave us the opportunity to suddenly find ourselves you know in a room sharing time with people like Brian Tolbert and David Lloyd and others like that who'd already sort of made the trans you know were working in professionally in comics and and we're starting to make that transition into the American market and it opened a lot of doors for the rest of us. Um, so, um, so that's really where where the sort of career came from. That hmm. um, when you started working on Hellblazer, I mean, what was it like to adjust and, and be the inker and not initially the penciler? Like, because I, I, I'm guessing that, that you were you were penciling before, and now you're doing the inking instead. Was that a major adjustment? Um, basically, I mean, I was it was early days for me, and I was just learning the craft and I didn't really mind what I did to be quite honest with you I mean my intention was to be an artist in my own right but I mean I'd met Karen Berger uh, the year before and shown her some of my my work and she had been quite honest with me and basically said that you know my drawing was good but I wasn't quite there yet but she liked my you know thought, thought that I might have potential to be a, a, an inker um, and a friend of mine, um, the artist Israeli, who's, who's been, been my pal pretty much from the beginning of my, my sort of uh, entry into comics, um, was the, they brought me a, a Winter & Newton Series 7 number 3 brush and basically said to me, here's a present, this is what all the pros use, uh, like David Lloyd and people like that, they, they, they ink with one of these, go and learn how to use it. So, so that's what I did, because prior to that I'd been doing everything with pens um, and markers and stuff like that, so that was my sort of transition into it. And, uh, you know, I, you know, given a new tool, new suddenly opportunity to try something different, I sort of embraced it, and the early stuff was a bit rough, but, um, you know, certainly by the time I got to the Hellblazer um, job, I, I 
refined the skills and learned to be quite a craftsman with with a brush, and um, and yeah, I mean, I'd help later was my sort of baptism of fire. You know, I'd never really worked on anything um, substantial before, and suddenly I was on a monthly book and very aware that it was, you know, they. DC were give, going out on a limb. I was going out on a limb a bit to sort of give me the opportunity. Um, uh, partly because people like Neil and Dave McKean were were kind of edging her on and saying, "Go on, go on, give give Bucky a chance." <laughs> so, um, so basically, uh, you know, I got I went through my sort of months trial and that was fine, and uh, and I just kept going. And then, you know, alongside that, obviously, I was very keen to do my own work as well. And Neil very kindly wrote a um, secret origin story for me for uh, Poison Ivy, um, which I then got to pencil and ink um, for DC. So that was my first sort of penciling assignment for them. And then when Richard um, Piers Rayner, the the artist on on Hellblazer, was going through some personal problems and basically reached a point where he he didn't think it was really able to continue with the book. I had something then that I could show to Karen and say, look, uh, you know, I, I can do this stuff. You know, I can make it look like Richard if you want. You know, I can, I've got that level of detail and realism now. Um, so, so she gave me, gave me the gig and that was, well, it was fantastic. Of course, the funny thing is I was trying to draw it so that it would match well with, with what I've been doing with Richard. And then they assigned Alfredo Alcala to me <laughs> and the pages just looked like Alfredo after that. But, um, I, but that was useful too, because I was learning a lot from, from watching the way that he handled my pages and seeing what changes he made. And that was quite a, a useful experience for me to sort of discern you know the judgment calls that another artist would make faced with uh, the same page so that was useful do you prefer to do your, your own like pencils and inks or do you like just kind of putting down the pencils and then seeing what other inkers are able to interpret from your pencils um bit of both I mean, I like the variety. To be honest with you, there are some jobs where it really is quite personal to me and I I would like to see it through from beginning to end. Um, And especially if I'm using techniques other than just straightforward uh, ink, you know, if if I'm using washes or, or introducing painted elements into the art or anything like that, then it becomes complicated to try and work with other artists to do that, you know, there have been a few occasions I've, I, you know, I've been doing things like that in fables, and it's always a little bit of a minefield for everybody else that I'm working with, trying to sort of work their way around all the extra bits that I'm throwing in. Um, but but if it's a straightforward sort of penciling job, which just needs you know a nice, good quality crafted you know, line ink line over the top then I'm quite happy to sort of you know work with other artists and I've been very fortunate you know people like Steve Lealoha and um, Wade from Gore Badger and um, uh, Andrew People and other people I've worked with over the over the years have, have done fabulous jobs and made me look good <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to argue with that um, also I think the other thing that happened and especially you know once I got into fables and really started to get into a groove on that series with the with the pencils is that for me 
um, the storytelling has become the essential element of, the, of, of everything I do now. For me, the problem solving and working out how to tell a story is really where my interest lies. So obviously every additional level of, you know, of the job that's required after that becomes more of a chore. Um, so I, I think you know, at this point with a lot of my jobs, it's actually rather nice to be able to just do a pencil and keep that very clean and very tight, but consider that to be sort of, an, for me personally, an end point in itself. Mm-hmm. And then everything that happens after that are other people bringing their skills to the table and developing the project further from it. Um, so it, like I say, a lot depends on, on the individual nature of the job that I'm being assigned to do. Now we're obviously relatively early in your career. So how does how does Miracle Man come about? And is that is that Neil wanting to work with you on on a big opportunity? Um, but the the weird thing is that Miracle Man was actually the first job I was offered. Really? Um, <laughs> Neil approached me. There was a Christmas party of this organization, the SSI, that I was telling you about, and um, and I was showing Neil this four page strip that I produced for a, a British anthology title called Heartbreak Hotel. And um, I showed this four-page strip, and it included, a, there was a, a woman character in there who um, was very bright and light and had this Tinkerbell effect and was sort of floating, flying around. And he just looked at these pages and said, would you like to work on Miracle Man with, or Marvel Man, as it's the way I said, you know, it was Miracle Man. Would like to work on Miracle Man with me because um, Alan Moore's just asked me if I take over as the writer and I need an artist and you know I love working with Dave McKean but I can write more stories than Dave can draw <laughs> so I think I need to work with someone else for this project and I think you'd be perfect for it um, and that would it completely threw me because this was prior to Hellblazer or anything you know did I had not had anything published in the States at that point and I was being offered this incredible opportunity to do such a high profile title so um, uh, you know it took me a while to kind of <laughs> to be ready for that I mean what, what helped it to a certain extent is that you know it took a, at least a year for if not a year and a half for the contracts to be sorted out for Neil and I to actually take over that series so uh, in the meantime it was, you know, it was Neil's help and Neil's encouragement that got me sort of talking to DC and ended up with me getting the Hellblazer gig. Um, and really all of that time with Hellblazer, you know, both as the inker and then as the penciler, in, in many ways was learning the craft. So I'd be ready <laughs> for when Miracle Man came along. Um, so it was just a strange the way, you know, life twists and turns what, what's it like to see you know that that work reprinted now uh and you know people really kind of eating it up and being excited for these reprints uh, of material that's you know well over 20 years old now what's it like to kind of see early versions of yourself and your old storytelling in that oh i mean it's, it's a delight to see i mean the thing i know it's it, it is full of weaknesses and there are many things that i did back then that i sort of question or cringe and certainly you know some of my storytelling is 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 weak but at the same time it was the work of an artist that was completely un 
hindered by any sort of fear of failing. It was just a question of leaping at it and doing the best you could and experimenting. You know, nobody was expecting anything specific from me. Um, I didn't really have a, a consistent art style at that point. So, you know, we made that uh, a virtue rather than an, a problem. You know, we, right from the outset, Neil and I sat down and discussed it, and we said, okay, we're going to do a series of short stories, and each one will be a different person's worldview, and we'll change the art style to reflect it. And from Neil's point of view, it was fun and interesting as well, because, you know, every time we came to the next strip, it was like, well, how do I envisage this? You know, we, we you know, we changed the structure. It would, it would, maybe it was a nine panel grid, then the next one would suddenly be just two panels per page and, and things like that. Sometimes we would do stuff that was quite elaborate and, and, you know, images would blend into each other. And other times it was a very tight, controlled type of storytelling. I mean, that was the thing that, that made it so exciting for me, and especially the fact that the diversity of materials that I used as well. You know, some stories were done entirely with basic photocopy montaging of textures and tones and things like that. Other ones were done, you know, in a very stark, almost, you know, expression, you know, German expressionist sort of style. And then the next thing you know, it's something very delicate and linear you know we did a children's book in there you know we were, we were just having fun and, and seeing what we could come up with um, to give ourselves time to prepare for the bigger job which was actually following on from where Alan and John Tolvin had left off with the third arc um, you know, because we knew at some point with Volume Five, we need to actually get back to the <laughs> the story proper and um, and see where where this world goes next. No, I did have a question from a listener when uh, I kind of put out a call for for questions, knowing that you were going to be on the show, and they definitely wanted to know about upcoming potential upcoming new material for Miracle Man. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything you can talk about, or you know, obviously about, um, I guess, hold up on seeing new material and uh, what it's been like to kind of maybe go back on any new new material if you're working on it. I don't know how much you can even say, to be honest. <laughs> um, there's a limit to how much I can I can say without potentially sort of. Um you know, spoiling things in terms of the story itself. I mean, what I can say is I can apologize for <laughs> initially for the fact that there hasn't been anything yet. Um, it's not that, that some work hasn't been going on behind the scenes, but um, basically Neil became a dad in 2015. I became a father for the first time uh, in May of 2016. I also had a big house move and other things going on, uh, on in the personal life that basically meant that I just wasn't getting much work done. And um, and also, I, you know, I think that, you know, when I got to the end of of fables, I was I was pretty exhausted because we'd had a, a sort of a thirteen year nonstop run on that and also during the last couple of years running up to the end of Fables I'd also been working on Dead Boy Detectives as a, as a second series and then writing Fairest so you know it meant that 
certainly for that last year or so before play was ended, I was often doing three books a month. So uh, I kind of just basically <laughs> collapsed for a while. Um, so the, no, the reality is that no, Neil and I are back to work on it. Um, we're very excited to be back on it. Uh, we've been starting to meet. We're, we're actually sort of co-writing it. Um, so, so we've been getting together and starting to work out how the, the story is going to go. Um, and it's interesting that we've, we've been starting to see it in a slightly different light. And although the, the basic core story is that we intended to tell back in the, in the, in the eighties and early nineties hasn't really changed. Uh, I think it's taken a few interesting twists and turns through our recent conversations and um, certainly I think the end of the Silver Age is going to go somewhere much darker than, than we originally intended so uh, I think it, it is becoming very exciting for us because it, it feels fresh and new and uh, not just um, you know, not just an exercise in trying to recall where we left off. So, um, so that's the good news. I can't tell you when the new material will be coming, but I can tell you it will. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, along these kind of lines, um, with working on new material, are you trying to match your style from before, or are you adapting it, or trying to, you know, have a certain level of consistency, or how have you kind of approached it from a from an artwork perspective? Um, my original intention was to try and um, find a way of sort of bridging the two, but uh, it, it's really being sort of quite radically reinvented at this point. So it's not really what I was. It's because basically, I'm becoming another artist. I'm not really being the Mark Buckingham that drew fables, but I'm also not the Mark Buckingham that drew Miracle Man in... 1992, 93, it's, it's something else. Um, and what I'm trying to do is to rework the two issues of the Silver Age that were reprinted, I mean, they were originally printed back in the, um, in the late and early 90s. And, um, and sort of treat that, you know, basically it's all becoming something new and fresh. So the Silver Age that people are going to see when it, when it comes is not a combination of old material with something new. It's actually going to be a fresh work. Wow. Uh, and we're sort of re reconsidering some of the bits and pieces that we did and the two or three issues that we were kind of, you know, the two that were published and the third that we started to work on before Eclipse went under. And so we're, we're kind of, we've gone back to that material and, and we're tweaking it and sort of re rethinking what we were doing there. Um, to better fit with the way everything's sort of progressing from then on. So I want people to be able to sort of treat the Silver Age as, as something fresh and new. Now, that's interesting because um, I, I, you actually made me think of something interesting that, you know, you're, you're kind of adapting and you're changing your style and you're kind of finding a new artistic expression or voice. And it kind of reminded me of the idea of that uh, when you have a, a comedian they have a set, and then once they do a special, they retire that set and they move on to new material and yeah. kind of almost like a new voice, not a new voice per se, but whole new stuff um, that, and a new expression. So it almost sounds like this new version of, of Mark Buckingham that we're going to get on these on the new material is kind of like that, that you're kind of retiring the old guy and you're, you're trying out something new, new material uh, on something that's familiar but still different. 
Well, I, I think in many ways what I'm doing is returning to the reality of how I always used to work. I mean, the, the thing with me is I spent the first sort of 15 or so years of my career jumping around, doing different things all the time, reinventing myself all the time, uh, never really having a consistent sort of style on any one project. And I think the thing that happened is because Fables came along and it was a major work that I was completely sort of locked into and instrumental in in its conception and design, especially with regard to things like um, all the stuff that happened in Animal Farm and, uh, and the um, and a lot of the Homeland stuff was all coming from from me. Um, I it, it was my world, and I wanted to sort of maintain it and to be true to what I kind of set out to do. So I tinker with it, and I, I do different things. And, you know, and every time there was a new story arc, I'd take a look at the characters and maybe pick on one or two that needed revive, resign, pick on one or two that needed to be, um, you know, redesigned or, or, or to kind of refine the way that I, I handled their appearance. And, um, and and to make little tweaks with the style, but it was always fairly consistent. And when I sort of hit on something that really worked well, like for example, the, um, the framing devices with the little border art that I'd have on either side of the page, when that um, you know started to become something that the, the readers really liked and, and were you know almost disappointed if it wasn't there, <laughs> um, it, it, it actually. Um, Became you know more and more focused and more and more consistent and 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 a, and a one a single vision that became the Mark Buckingham style, uh, having previously never really stayed in one spot long enough for people to kind of pin something down on me. So I think it was very conscious in my mind that with Fables ending, it was a it was an opportunity for me to um, to take a breather and. And sort of reconsider my approach to my art, and to and to be um, a little bit more uh, playful again. Mm. And I think that's certainly a key word in in what I'm trying to do with with the fable, uh, with the with the Miracle Man stuff, and um, and certainly with other things that I'm working on at the moment too. You'll see um, a variety of different versions of me out there in the world that won't necessarily. <laughs> have any connection to, to what people will assume is, is my style or, or my way of working. I'm interested that in, in the mid-90s, it seems like you were started doing a lot of work for Marvel, but primarily as an anchor. And I'm interested, mm-hmm. I'm interested in kind of how that came about, because you've obviously, at that point, you've done a fair bit of penciling and inking uh, to suddenly kind of be kind of more used as an inker, especially on uh, Chris, I don't know if it's Bacallo or Bacallo or how to pronounce it, but... Uh, Chris Bacello. Bacello, okay. So then you kind of become his de facto inker for a while. How did that come up, kind of come about? Um, basically, I mean, you know, I always used to, you know, default... If, if a job came up that related to Neil, I always went for it. And, um, and the Death miniseries was something I was... Um, uh, you know, in, intrigued to hear about um, at the time um, because Chris was also the artist on Shade the Changing Man at the time. They actually got me to do a sample for both. <laughs> I think they were trying to decide which way. You know, do 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 you you know 
uh, put him put the new guy on on the mini series, or do I you know, bring Mark into into another book or something? And um, and we seem to combine really well. I, I certainly saw things in Chris's style that I absolutely loved, and I think at that particular point with the first Death mini series, there was um, a definite style convergence point where where I was headed and where Chris was headed uh, just dovetailed together beautifully. So um, so I, I'm, I'm extraordinarily proud of that. And I, I learned so much from working with Chris. I mean, Neil always used to say that um, uh, that, that I, I, I sort of eat my collaborators. And that's certainly the case, you know, with, with Chris. You know, I, I, I learned so much that I sort of became Chris. Um, <laughs> And, and for a while that was useful because, you know, the work that we were doing was extremely popular. The Death miniseries did very well. Um, you know, the Generation X stuff did well. Um, Chris had also agreed to do the um, Ghost Rider 2099 um, series at, at Marvel, but very quickly realized that there was a limit to how much he'd actually be able to contribute to that. So that instead became a, a project where he was just doing... Um, layouts for the first three issues and one cover and that was pretty much the full extent of his uh, involvement so right from the outset I was sort of doing finishes, doing covers and sort of you know developing a lot of the feel and look of that book um, and Marvel at the time Marvel were quite keen to sort of you know give me opportunities to pencil um, so I kind of as well so I sort of jumped at the chance that I could do more sort of superhero stuff I, I, must, I must have to confess that I, I'm i a bigger fan of when it comes to superheroes I'm a bigger fan of Marvel characters than I am of DC ones I think simply because my formative years you know from sort of 6 to, to 10, 11 that was the superheroes I read those were the characters that I grew up on so obviously having an opportunity to draw you know, Doctor Strange or um, or you know, an X Men character or whatever was a big deal for me, and I and I wanted to be sort of part of that. Um, I think the other thing that's important to bear in mind is I I, I went through quite a, a sort of a difficult period after Miracle Man ended because it ended in such a an abrupt and unexpected fashion. And it had been such an important work for me. I, I was investing so much of myself in it. And it really was the sort of the focus of my, of all my thinking towards my art, that when that was suddenly sort of snatched from under me, um, I didn't really know what I was doing anymore. And I, you know, I did a few penciling jobs after that, I was working on different things, but nothing really seemed to feel right. And I think that's one of the reasons why I sort of drifted more and more into inking work is because I could see that losing myself in the craft and working with other people allowed me to sort of keep being busy and to contribute and to be part of the business without the sort of the strain and the pressure that I was feeling on uh, for my own work. You know, I, I, was, I, hadn't, I didn't know where I was going. So um, I think that was that was the big shift at that point. Um, and for a while, I kind of lost myself in 
in sort of being Chris's stunt double. <laughs> whenever, whenever Chris left the book, I'd basically carry it on in his style, or I'd, I'd kind of, you know, allow that sort of bridging sort of thing to happen. And I, obviously, the most extreme example was the um, the second Death miniseries, where um, where Chris actually had, for various reasons, the project ran very late. And Chris got to a point where he really needed to be going back to work at Marvel on the on the Gen X book, and he was only halfway through the Death series. So, um, you know, he, he didn't really want to, but he had to leave it. And um, and I think that was that was a, a sort of a, an interesting point for me because that was when I sort of really sort of gained a lot of kudos with with everyone at Vertigo at DC for the way that I kind of just basically volunteered to jump in and be Chris you know it's like okay well I was inking it but on the next page I'll pencil it and it'll look the same um and and that was you know that was an interesting time and I learned a lot but then after that you know I went back to work with Chris on Gen X but I could tell that we were kind of starting to head off in other directions and his style was starting to to become something different and I certainly wasn't the direction that I wanted to go in anymore so um, what happened is that Scott Peterson uh, who was uh, editor in the Bat Office at the time asked me to contribute to um, uh, a, a special of uh, Mr. Freeze working with Paul Dinney um, and um and I had such a great time on that, and I thought this is this is wonderful. I'm really enjoying this. I'm starting to sort of enjoy being an, a penciler again. There was still a strong influence from Chris in what I was doing, but it was starting to go somewhere different. Um, and uh, and the next thing I know, they offered me um, a contract to, to to be a penciler on Shadow of the Bat for a year. And, and I used that opportunity to basically say, okay, I'm going to retire from being an inker. Uh, this is my opportunity to sort of find my own voice again and sort of plow my own, own, own little path. And, uh, and that was really the, you know, where the big change started to take place. So I had that time on Batman. Um, I then spent um, about 16 months on and off working on Titans with Devin Grayson. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and that was tough. The problem with that book is that I, uh, you know, after Batman, where I'd been basically drawing a, a black cape fluttering around rooftops for several years, I suddenly had a team of ten characters and legions of villains going up against them, and I, it was too much. I just uh, wasn't built for team books, and I didn't realise it until I was on one. Um, <laughs> so I think that was the, that was a bit of a a shock to the system quite how how much of a struggle that was um and i you know and i got to the end of that series and i was starting to seriously wonder whether i shouldn't go back to being an inker again <laughs> because i felt well, like i really don't know what i'm doing um you know and um and the funny thing is at that point um ralph macchio had, had got in touch with me um with regard to working on spider-man and um let me see. Just give me a moment to regather my thoughts. Okay. Um, now the thing is, I, I, I was 
quite excited by that because I've, I've always had a great fondness for the character. And secondly, um, it was back to just having a sort of a single main character and his supporting cast, which I thought would, would sort of suit me well as well. And, um, and the thing that also happened at that point, which was really important for me personally, was that I had um, been to a signing at a comic store in Bath um, here in the UK. And um, and while I was there, I noticed a, a magazine on the shelf that I hadn't come across before. And it was an issue of the Jack Kirby collector. And it, 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 in particular, it was one that featured this sort of... Um, uh, sort of scene from the Odyssey and it's a cyclops and these little soldiers sort of um, poking it with spears and it was a Kirby pencil drawing and it had been inked by Mike Mignola and I just saw this piece and it absolutely captivated me and I, there was something about that style and that look that I really liked and then I opened up the magazine and it was absolutely full of all these um reproductions of Kirby pencil pages from his uh, from his archives and in particular it had a, a new god story the the pact in its entirety and I was just pouring over this stuff and absolutely fell in love with it um, and the thing is I'd always liked Kirby's comics you know as, as, a, as a kid and uh, you know I had a, an affection for Kirby but I'd never really properly studied his work and suddenly I was seeing the actual Kirby pencils, that his, his vision, his, his, his approach to storytelling sort of mapped out in front of me. And it completely changed the way that I was working. I immediately threw away all my technical pencils and went and brought the cheapest ones that I could find from the local um, store, the, the ones that school kids take to school with a little eraser <laughs> on the bottom and just brought a box of those and just started drawing in a much more free and, and expressive way, um, you know, let the pencils get you know, blunt so that, you know, had strong, sharp, dynamic lines and, and just, you know, a lot of weight in there because I think the problem that I'd had for a long time with, with the work I was doing, it was very tentative, it was very sensitive and there was a lot of sort of delicacy in there but there was no dynamism and I thought, you know, this is this is something that's been missing from my work for, for a long time and so with the first issue of Peter Parker's Spider-Man that I drew for, for Marvel, um, I completely changed my working methods and absolutely loved it. And the other thing that worked in my favour with that project is they assigned me to to a book and then uh, didn't have a writer for it. Uh, and that was an issue for, for about three weeks. Um, and it took about three weeks before they... they finally picked Paul Jenkins to, to be the writer of, of this particular series. Uh, so I took advantage of that that period to uh, just spend lots of time drawing the character, did a lot of sort of spec covers and um, bits of promo art and, and, and was sort of just learning to be a Spider-Man artist without having any pressure on me. 
And so I, you know, I really had the sort of style nailed down and, and look that I wanted for the book. And then once Paul came on board, um, basically they turned around to him and said, well, congratulations, you're the new writer of Peter Parker Spider-Man and the script's already late. Basically, they, you know, we were, <laughs> we were already, you know, challenged deadline wise. So rather than sitting and writing a script, because I think he wasn't even at home at the time, I think he was traveling. Um, we basically just started planning out issues of Spider-Man over the phone. Oh, wow. And, and that was such a liberating experience for me to suddenly have this sort of free reign with what we were doing. And it was just because, okay, well, if, you know, three pages of Spidey swinging through a cityscape and then he does this. And, and so, yeah, and it, but it was, it was quite free form and we were having a lot of fun with it. And we knew that we wanted to get back to kind of core, simple stories that revolved around Peter and his family and his friends and were not really epic stories involving complex sort of battles and that sort of stuff. We wanted the, the intimate stuff. And and that really was our strength. And I think it was something that Spider-Man had been lacking for a while. And I think it's sort of a testament to how how strong and, and and clear those stories were that they're still reprinting them now whenever sort of Spider-Man movies come out or whatever they always seem to, to plug for one of one of the stories Paul and I did together to, to sort of back up the new material so um, you know it meant a lot to us and we both really enjoyed our time on that book and although I left um left you know, early and went off to do um, fables and other stuff um, you know when Paul finally got to the end of his run a couple of years after I'd gone you know they, they got me to come back and do a final sort of curtain call story with Paul and and, uh, and that was one of those cases where I, I sort of inked myself and was able and I brought Disraeli in who's also my as I said old friend and my colorist also a miracle man so that uh, you know I could make it as special as I possibly could be and to really make it quite a personal little story um, are there any particular issues of that run with uh, Paul that really kind of stand out as being something you're particularly proud of from an artistic perspective um, I have a huge fondness for the, the mimes. We had a gang of, <laughs> <laughs> of villains who, who never spoke. And when, uh, when Marvel decided to have one of their sort of event months where it was all silent comics, we knew that, that those characters had to come back and be the dominant part of that tale. <laughs> and that, that issue I'm, I'm particularly fond of, I have to admit. I'm also, as I said, the last one, the, the final curtain, was, was a, a special one for me. Also because in some ways it was a little bit of a sort of a test run for the day the Miracle Man came back because I deliberately used a variety of different styles and techniques within that story. So some of the reminiscence uh, sections with with Peter and Uncle Ben were deliberately sort of drawn in a, in a bit of a uh, Bill Patterson, um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes mm. style. Um, and, um, and things like that. And, you know, and there were other pieces that, you know, were, were you know, t- drawing on different different techniques and different approaches as well so that was that was that was a useful and, and interesting sort of exercise as well and uh, I mean the, the other story that I really liked was that there was one that we did about um, a little um, 
a little African American kid in the in the ghetto who's um, you know he idolizes Spider Man, and, and the story ends with um, with Spider Man. So he, he this dream version of Spider Man taking the mask off, and he he is how the kid imagined a sort of a father figure should be. You know, he, 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 and I just. Um, that one, that one, really poignant. I know it meant a lot to a lot of people. Um, That's a fantastic issue. Um, like, just to interject for a moment, like I actually had a chance uh, in the last year to talk with Paul about that issue, and uh, it was really interesting, kind of hearing uh, where that came from for him, and the idea that you know, growing up, he never thought of uh, Spider-Man not being English. Uh, yeah. and, and that kind of concept and kind of then using that for a very kind of New York way of telling that same type of story that the idea that Spider-Man could be anybody and yes. uh, how it, it's really, really well done and your artwork is fantastic. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, that was that was a very special issue for me too. Um, Actually, I have a, I have a, I have a question. Um, yeah. When you and Paul started, so you guys were kind of jamming, doing it over the phone. Yes. Did that continue throughout your run, or did it become a little bit more standard scripts? Or? No, it, became, it became more traditional later on, um, basically, because you know we got to a point where Paul was actually able to be in his office and, and, and write stories you know, in a more straightforward script way and send them over. Um, Paul actually likes to write like a more full script rather than the sort of the plot method. Um, so it was, you know, it was a little bit out of his comfort zone when we were, we were sort of jamming it and, and, and doing it verbally and stuff. But, um, but it worked and we enjoyed it. And I think what was useful is that we just developed a very good rapport and a, and a really good working relationship. So when the scripts came, we kind of understood each other. And it, we, you know, there was um, there was a lot of stuff that didn't need to be said, if that, if that makes sense. Um, now, how did, how did Fables kind of come into your picture? Because that's obviously a transformative, huge te- part of your career. Ends up being on Fables. Everyone kind of remembers you for Fables now. Um, you weren't the original artist, but it's uh, it's almost like people will kind of edit you in to have having been the only artist of the book, even though you weren't. Uh, well, I, actually, you, you say that, but no, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, it is it is a frustration for me, and it's probably the same frustration that maybe Charlie feels a little bit with Walking Dead not being the artist of the first volume, and yet being the artist that you associate with the series forever after <laughs> beyond that. Uh, and I mean, it's a bit of a similar boat. I mean, the, the weird one for me with with Fables is that um, just to kind of put it all in perspective, the first thing that Bill, Bill Willingham and I did together was the Merv Pumpkinhead Agent of Dream special. Um, Shelley Bond, the editor at, at, at Vertigo, really felt that we could be a good team together. And, um, and we absolutely loved doing that story. And I really liked Bill's approach to storytelling and his pacing. And it just it just felt very natural and very instinctive for me. Um, so I was really excited by the idea of doing more stuff with Bill if the opportunity arose. And Shelley, you know, very early on was talking to me about this new series that Bill was starting to develop with her uh, fables, and she sort of um, uh, had me sort of lined up to be on it from day one. Uh, but the thing is, I was, as, as you're aware, still doing Spider-Man as a monthly book for Marvel at the time. So, you know, I, I basically talked to her in terms of me doing a story arc 
but not necessarily being you know the the main artist on the on the series and they you know and very quickly they decided that they would follow the the sandman model instead and you know for each story arc a, a different artist would come in um and you know but it would but bill would be you know being the, the creator of the series would be its sort of primary controller and then you know he would sort of dictate the way it would go and bill did a lot of design work because being a, a, a you know a fabulous artist as well as a great writer you know he he designed the looks for all the key um you know members of the fables cast from snow white and boy blue through to bluebeard and and Big B and Rose. I mean, he sort of had it very clear how all they, how all of them were going to look. And he also sort of drew out little maps and plans for how you know the business office and the and the woodland building and all these things should be. Um, and so um, basically, they they sort of talked to me about about fables and Shelley offered me a choice. I mean, I, she said you can either do the first arc which is the murder mystery set in, in New York and, um, and sort of set everything up. Or you can do the second arc, which is where we take everybody to the other primary location of Fables, which is the animal farm. And for me personally, at that point, I thought, well, what's the point in me doing a murder mystery in New York when I spend all of my time drawing New York scenes and people? You know, what I was craving was drawing animals and organic environments and nature. I mean, that's, uh, I don't, if I'm brutally honest, I dislike drawing people immensely. And it take, it's the primary thing that people ask me to do. And, um, and I mean, and I've learned to make, make it something that I, you know, I take pleasure in because I love the little nuances of dialogue and conversation and glances and the little, the little minutiae of interaction is the bit that I get really interested in when it comes to drawing people but if I have the choice I would much rather be drawing cats and dogs and horses and <laughs> fish and birds and anything else and trees give me trees and grasses and all that rocks you know so um, so when Animal Farm came you know when they showed me Animal Farm um, the, the plot for that I just said this is fantastic it's two, two girls and everybody else is a is a talking rabbit or whatever you know it's just, this is perfect this is exactly what I want and there's dragons and giants and all this other stuff and I get to design it all that was the other thing that was a delight for me is that I actually would be able to have a blank canvas with that one because Bill hadn't hadn't planned anything with the farm you know he had an idea of it was a main building surrounded by kind of munchkin land. You know, he had this, this sort of notion of how it was, but, it, you know, something I could actually just embrace and make my own. So I, I then threw a, a little bit of a spanner in the works for, um, for, for Vertigo by uh, basically saying I would like to draw the second arc rather than the first. And... Um, and so that was agreed. So I became the first artist to be signed up for Fables, <laughs> but not for the first story. Um, and as far as I was concerned, that was probably going to be the only Fables story I would get to. Um, but what I hadn't anticipated was the extent to which I absolutely loved the book. Um, 
And so, I mean, it took them a couple of months to sort of find uh, another artist who would handle the the first volume, and then and then uh, and then they found Lan. So Lan came on board, and so the way it worked initially is that we basically were running parallel to each other, working on the the first two arcs. So he'd be drawing issue one, and I'd be drawing issue six, and anything that cropped up in my issue that was relevant to what he was doing, like the design of the farm truck and, you know, the three pigs and things like that would get sent to him. And in return, I'd be getting to see how the business office and all the key characters and stuff were being handled by Lan so that I could sort of try to maintain some consistency. And they hired Steve Lealoha as the inker and basically had had him inking both of us simultaneously with the idea being that they could use Steve as the sort of the um, the moderator across the book with every issue you know he, he would be the, the consistent element that would help to sort of keep everything um, connected and, and, and continuity wise would, would be more precise um, and that's the way we work but the, the reality is that by the time I got to the end of of fables um, animal farm um, I didn't want to go back to anything else you know Marvel had offered me um, a few issues of Thor I'd just done a two part um, Fantastic Four story with Mark Wade which I absolutely love doing and um, but I just fables just for me was the kind, I, I suddenly realised I'd found the book I'd been looking for you know, I, I, you know, it was it was something that just seemed to fit really comfortably with me. That subject matter wise, just ticked all the boxes. I'd always loved, you know, fairy tales and, and folklore and and those kind of subject matters. And the breadth of the series seemed so vast, and the opportunity to create stuff from scratch for it was was too hard to resist. And I just started to become very fond of all the characters. And as I said, Bill's storytelling was so comfortable for me that I just thought, no, this is, this is the book for me. Um, and thankfully, you know, Shelley and Bill both said, yes, of course, you know, we're, we, we'd love you to carry on. Uh, and then after that, I wouldn't let it go. <laughs> it was like, no, my book now. Um, so, um, so that was it really. So, um, did, did you did you have conversations with Bill? Like, did you always know where it was going to end, or or when it was going to end, or was, did he kind of keep that in his own head? Oh no, we would. I mean, to be honest with you, we talked about the end of Fables pretty much all the time, all the way through the, the book. <laughs> but we, we, you know, I think early on it was more a case of we kept wondering when they would cancel us. Hmm. I think is the more accurate kind of. Uh, the thinking, you know, we, we always assume that, well, you know, we'll, you know, the next, the next big sort of event was always kind of the end point. You know, when we did March of the Wooden Soldiers, there was a point before that where we thought, well, maybe that'll be the point at which they end the book. And when we did the wedding issue, there was a bit of us that felt that, you know, well, maybe, you know, for a while that was an end point. And then when we got past that, it was like, well, you know, we need to, they need to go back to the homelands. They need to take on the emperor, and it was that's the way it kind of kept going all the way through. Is that with each stage, um, you know, 
we new stories came to mind and and we kept moving the posts you know it's <laughs> like oh actually no we, we can we can tell this bit of the story now and of course the more characters we created the more worlds we visited the whole project just developed and 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 expanded to a point where we started to think that there wasn't really a limit and then for a while I remember Bill you know, liked the idea of us doing at least 301 issues of Fables so we could beat Cerebus, you know, there was, <laughs> we suddenly started to get a little bit competitive with the idea of longevity and also to prove a point because I think there was a, there was a, we they'd started to develop this idea that the optimum length for a Vertigo book, you know, that was doing well was about 60 to 70 Issues, yeah. You know, Sandman had ended, ended at seventy-five, and it had become, um, you know, a sort of a, a standard sort of end point. So, oh, the story will wrap up at about that length of time. I think why the last man ended at sixty or something. And I, I think there was a there was a thinking that that was fine. You know, that was enough. Um, and we never really felt that there was that level of limitation because we didn't think we were limited to one set of characters or one tale that needed to be told with us it was relatively infinite because the concept was was so broad um and uh, and and so yeah for a while we we just didn't see an end point particularly i think what uh, you know we the, the series expanded a lot in terms of the the spin-offs so we had the jack series we had cinderella we had the literals we had um fairest you know we had all of these other outlets and the different graphic novels and things so we had all these other stories that we were able to tell alongside the the continuing sort of primary plots that we pursued in fables and and so in a way i think we sort of sort of noted through a lot of material quicker than maybe we'd expected. And also, you know, I think it just, it did become a bit of a strain because we were, we were juggling multiple titles and, and, and the world was quite a vast one to, to play with. Um, and I think we just reached the point where, you know, certainly Bill was, you know, saw his 60th birthday on the horizon was just starting to think, well, you know, did, the monthly schedules are starting to really be a strain and there were a lot of other projects that he really wanted to get to um, and he just felt that as long as Fables was going it was um, you know there, there was no room for him to, to really do anything else and I think it was you know it was tiring for, for all of us I think so so when we got to the point where Bill was starting to develop the, the, the arc with um, Rose and Snow, uh, the happily ever after when as we were working on Camelot and as we were approaching that. Uh, Bill said, I think this is actually the last story. You know, it certainly came to him that we'd gone back to what the core of the series was when it started, which was that relationship between Snow White and her sister that had been at the forefront of the Legends and Exile tale and the first volume and it just felt like we'd kind of come back to that and we were resolving lots of things to do with Snow and Big B and issues to do with you know the state of, of Fable Town, the relationship between everybody there and the homelands and it was just it just felt like we'd reached that point where we were coming to the last tales of lots of characters. Um 
and it just seemed like the right point to stop. It's not to say that we we couldn't see other places that it could go, but it just felt like it was the natural point to say goodbye. And we gave ourselves a nice long sort of wind down. We had 16 months um, to basically sort of complete the series. And because we also had Ferris running at the same time, we were able to plan out how both of those books would wrap up over the course of those those remaining issues so that we could pretty much cover everything that we felt needed to be tied up mm-hmm. when we got to, to Fables 150. I mean, uh, Bill and I, we went away for a little writer's retreat um, for about three days. Um, on the We went to... Um, there was Orcas Islands that's just on the border between um, between Canada and the USA to you know we'd go find somewhere fairly remote where we could sort of drive through forests and <laughs> go on boat rides hoping <laughs> to see whales and things like that but also could spend time in front of a nice fire with a little nightcap and just sort of talk through all the characters and where we were going with everything uh, I certainly I went there was a phase at that point I was pretty much the Fables continuity cop because I was the one person who was keeping all of these plot lines swirling in his head um, so I was actually able to sort of remind Bill of quite a few characters and, and sort of little plot threads that we'd left hanging and there was a lot of stuff that I personally wanted to get to with regard to Animal Farm and, and some of those characters that I'd created for the series that um, I'd sort of introduced as background or, or little incidental characters that I knew what their backstory was, but Bill didn't. So basically I said, well, what, you know, we, we already had this idea that I would write the final arc of, of Ferris. And I said, well, why don't I take the farm? I'll, I'll wrap up everything with, with all the animal characters while you focus on what's happening with the human cast in Fables. And that way I can also work in some tales of some of the characters that you know, I wanted to, 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 to handle, you know, whose stories I wanted to tell. Um, and, uh, and it worked very well, I think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I still think that there's, there's, there's plenty still to be done with the Fables universe, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure there will be more to come at some point. Now, what was it like kind of adapting yourself and actually being the writer of Ferris? I mean, you spent your career as a, as obviously a storyteller and a, you know, but now you're actually the one writing the scripts. What was that kind of like? Did it feel natural? Uh, yeah, it did. It did. I think what had helped immensely is that I'd sort of built up to it over, over the last sort of three or four years prior to that. Um, I wrote a prose story for Bill in Fables 100, the Pinocchio's Army Tale, mm-hmm. which Bill did an illustration for, and that sort of gave me a taste for wanting to sort of write pieces. Also, um, there was a, a Merv Pumpkinhead story that we did for a House of Mystery annual, where um, basically, uh, for various reasons, Bill... Um, was was not able to kind of get to writing the script as as per plan, and we reached a point where I actually needed to just draw something. So <laughs> I kind of plotted it myself, and then 
I wrote a script myself and basically in the end sort of Bill came in at the last moment and sort of went through the story and made a few tweaks here and there but basically I kind of wrote wrote, wrote a six pager for, for DC myself um, and and that gave me a bit of confidence and then following on from that you know there were points during um, the, the later stages of Fables where, you know, uh, Bill, Bill had had some health issues and things like that, so, um, you know, he wasn't able to work as, as well as he, he would do otherwise, so um, so I was sort of jumping in and doing a bit more, so, you know, a bit like with the relation, you know, with the working uh, with Paul on Spider-Man stuff, uh, there was a lot more sort of plotting over the phone. And, and me sort of going away and writing scripts, and especially um, during um, uh, the Camelot story arc, where I kind of switched from doing pencils to doing layouts for a few issues. Um, basically, we needed scripts so that Russ knew what was happening beyond the kind of the doodles that I was sending him to show him how the, the, the basic layout was. So I was writing a script to accompany my layouts so that he had enough sense of what was happening to be able to um, to finish the art. And then Bill would jump in and he'd dialogue the, the story adapting what I'd what I'd created uh, as a sort of a rough script for us to work with. So I, I kind of just found myself over time just acquiring the skill sets um, just through needing to help out. And I think that was the thing. So when Ferris came, it just felt like the most natural thing in the world to just make that transition into writing a script. And the funny thing is I'd spent years avoiding it. I, 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 know I always wanted to write my own stories, but I, I just didn't believe I could do it. Hmm. I just didn't think I really could. I certainly, I mean, I didn't have any motivation to do it because everybody that I was working with was infinitely better than I thought I could ever possibly be anyway. You know, I mean, when you're, when you're getting scripts from people like Grant Morrison or, you know, all the stuff that I've done with Neil and people like that, you just, you know, you just think, well, you know, I can't compete with this. <laughs> I will just learn and enjoy the experience of working with these people. And I don't, you know, well, why should I be bothering anybody? With, with my own scripts um, but uh, yeah no I just started to become confident in the idea that I actually understood how stories should be told um, and when it came to Ferris I made a very conscious decision not to draw it myself because I wanted to prove that I had the capability to be a writer alone I didn't need I, I wasn't relying on my artwork to fill in the gaps or to um, uh, to support what might have otherwise been you know sort of weak dialogue or something. I, I just needed to prove to people I could just do that one job on its own and not um, you know and, uh, be taken seriously purely for that that role um, and I you know I was very fortunate I had Russ Braun as the artist on that and Russ is a uh, it's an absolutely astonishing artist. I love his work so much. I, he really should be a, a bigger star <laughs> in the comics industry because um, you know everything he draws is just beautiful. It's that balance between the sort of animation, this more animated uh, energy that he has in his art, and yet it's also really beautiful illustration work, just very elegant. 
as well. And um, no, it was it was a delight. Every page that he sent me just made me so happy. Um, and that was important to me also because I was handling this story with the characters that meant the most to me in the in the Fables universe. Um, it needed to be someone I trusted, and it needed to be someone who. You know, I would sit there and wait for the art to come, and when it arrived, I'd be thinking, "This is so much better than I would have done." <laughs> um, you know, I wanted I wanted to to be impressed, and I wanted to be surprised. Um, you know, that's great. Now that it's been a, you know over a year and a half since uh, since Fables wrapped, do you miss it actively, or are you ready for new things or new challenges because it was such a long run? Oh, both. Um, I mean, I, I think for the first month or two, I was delighted to not, <laughs> not have to draw anymore. It was like, no, oh, you know, there, there was, um, I remember you know, commenting to people that, you know, I'd been storing fables continuity and all this stuff in my head for like 12, 13 years. And I, I just kept saying to people, I can info dump all of this stuff and I can start remembering the names of my wife and friends and, and, <laughs> you know, and, and start actually putting other stuff back in my head. Um, but I do, I, I, but then I certainly did also go through a period where I really started to miss it. And I certainly missed everybody that I worked with on it. Mm. Uh, I think that was the thing. We we were a very close-knit creative family. You know, with Todd on the lettering, with with Lee on the colour, with um, with Steve and Andy, uh, you know, on, on the inks. It was, just, you know, we, and with Bill and with Shelley, you know, we just... Uh, it was it was a really well functioning team, and I just um, you know we all communicated extremely well with each other. There was never any room for doubt. It was just um, a pleasure, a pleasure to, to to get up in the morning knowing that I was going to be working with those people. Um, so I missed that immensely. I missed Bill's stories because they were always you know getting a new script from Bill was always such a delight. But, um, you know, I miss Shelley calling me and chasing me all the time because uh, <laughs> the most productive I've been in my entire career is, is the, the 13 years that I spent working with her on Fables. Um, I don't think any other editor has ever managed to get as much <laughs> work out of me. Um, you know, and, and certainly she was good for Bill for the same reason. You know, she... she we, we never had a chance to stop and think about what we were doing because we were always aware of the next two or three things down the line that we had to get to. And I think that that's actually quite um, a positive way of being. You just, you just let instinct drive you along and you just throw yourself into jobs and you don't overanalyze. But, you know, when, when you allow the innate understanding of the medium to just come through in what you do, I think it's often your best work. Um, and so that's something that I think thrived through through Shelley's careful management of, of the book and the team. Now, looking forward, so what can you? What are you able to tease about what twenty seventeen holds in store for you? Oh um, well, twenty sixteen was my year of, of sleeping. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, twenty fifteen was mostly sleeping. Twenty sixteen was mostly having a small child and moving house and basically not getting any work done at all um, 
2017 is me back to being ridiculously busy again, following up on what I was just saying to you before about, um, you know, it tends to work better for me if I'm just running on instinct and just throwing myself a hundred different things. Well, that's 2017. So I've got a couple of little projects at DC, neither of which I can really talk about, although you'll, you'll hear about one of them in the next week or so. Um, I have uh, Miracle Man, of course, which will be the, the sort of primary focus of my year ahead. I'm also um, contributing a chapter to the adaptation of American Gods that um, Dark Horse are going to be putting out. Um, so that'll be a pleasure working with uh, with P. Craig Russell on that. Um, and then um, and there's another little sort of uh, another another thing with them that that's um, that, that's in the pipeline, and um, and then on top of that, I'm also developing a number of sort of personal projects. I um, I have a multimedia thing that I'm working on, which is combining comics with with music. Um, I also ha- I'm doing a lot of work with bands as well at the moment, so I'm doing an, an awful lot of sort of album cover artwork and uh, and things like that. And again, you know, some some examples of, of sort of comics and, and music crossing over. So um, a lot of a lot of interesting different things sort of uh, on, on the way. But uh, certainly, you you know, I, I'll, I'll be busy this year. <laughs> You'll see plenty of me uh, as as the year unfolds. That's well, very exciting. Well, I'm, I'm sure, uh, well, I can speak for myself, but I'm sure your fans are also very excited to see more regular work from you again after kind of going through withdrawal for a while. <laughs> I needed the rest, honest. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Mark, thank you so much for uh, spending your time with us today and for uh, regaling us with some great stories and some fantastic insights into your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.